Hey folks, we have some exciting news for you all. We have just launched a brand new company founded on the tenets of our love as a business strategy philosophy, the same philosophy that you've grown to know and love. This new venture is called Culture Plus. Culture Plus is a culture as a service company that provides training experiences, consulting services, and digital tools to help companies achieve high performing and high reliability cultures and teams. To learn more, visit culture-plus.com. That's culture-plus.com. And now let's get to the show. Today's episode is packed full of incredible stories and insights as we really focus in on change and how to create sustainable change that sticks. And to break it all down, we invite Lubna Noradine to the show, an expert in change. She shares wisdom from her life, her research, and her work, and from the story of how she survived two civil wars to what she's been working on with doctors and nurses in healthcare today. We learn a whole lot, and you will too. So enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Love as a Business Strategy, a podcast that brings humanity to the workplace. We're here to talk about business, but we want to tackle topics that most business leaders shy away from. And we believe that humanity and love should be at the center of every successful business. How's it going? I'm your host, Jeff Ma, and I am joined by my co-host and co-author, Mohammed Anwar today. Hey, Mo, how's it going? Hey, Jeff. Good to see you again. Excellent. Each episode, Mo, you know, we dive into one element of business or strategy and we test our theory of love against it. And today's guest mm -hmm. is a leadership scholar, executive coach, orphans advocate, civil war survivor, and CEO of Mind Market Consultants, a resource and coaching center for organizations and startups that prioritizes cultures of brilliance over systems of unnecessary change and chaos. So I'd like to welcome to the show, Dr. Lubna Nuruddin. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate okay. the intro. Absolutely. Lubna, uh, as you may know uh, or not know, we actually have to start with an icebreaker. Um, ah. <laughs> so you didn't know, but one I thing to make it... One way to make it easier for you is I make Mo go first, and then you can get the same question. So you have more Absolutely. time. Let's do that. Mo, your question today is, what is your favorite tradition or holiday? You've asked me this question before. But, oh, have I? Um, Maybe it's changed. Yes. Maybe it's changed since. Okay. Well, my favorite uh, holiday is the Christmas break, uh, because at that point in time, like, Everybody at work goes off, uh, clients are busy, everybody's, you know, doing their things with their families and celebrating the holidays. So it really becomes a relaxing vacation time. It's not like you're going on vacation in other times of the year and people are still texting you, you know, you're still trying to put out fires, still deal with work. So you're not really going on vacation. So I really like the Christmas time. Um, holidays because it's the time that I think I literally disconnect from work and I know everybody's also enjoying themselves. So it's, it's the best time of the year. Agreed. Good answer. Lubna, <laughs> same question. What is your favorite tradition or holiday? Uh, I think for me, my favorite holiday is being with my parents in London. And when I get to be with them, 
which doesn't happen to be often because of work, I feel it's the definite holiday. So we celebrate uh, dinner together and bring all the traditions to that table whenever I can and be with them. That's so, um, and I, I agree with you, Mohammed. It's Mohammed is being there uh, at Christmas time. It is a relaxing time. It seems like a gratitude time more than any other holiday. Absolutely. Yep. Agreed. Absolutely. Well, that was easy, quick, and painless. But I get to jump in. I yes. Jump in now. And you know we're just around the corner for the holidays too. So now you're getting me all excited, Jeff. I'm always excited. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Luna, uh, I gave you a very, I mean, a very, very brief introduction that didn't even cover kind of all that you do. So I wanted to give a little space for you to just start us off, just telling us a little bit about who you are and your a little bit about your story and your passion, if you don't mind. All right. I I, uh, I think my passion uh, has always been finding potential in people and uh, truly believing in the potential of others. And the human is when you said humanity, I loved it because believing in the true essence of humanity, uh, been through two civil wars in both wars came very close to death. And of course, the most surprising factor of hope and optimism came from a human that I would not expect that hope to come from. So um, I've learned about change at a very, very, very young age. At the age of 10, I woke up to the hot, you know, uh, end of a rifle pressed on my forehead. Uh, I was 10 years old and Sierra Leone was on the verge of civil war. And when there's an impending battle happening, uh, things, unwelcome things and unwelcome visitors do happen. So in my case, it was rebels from other cities coming in to take whatever valuables they could find. On that day, uh, my family and I managed to leave, uh, flee, leave our home, leave everything behind, including my teddy bear. I was more upset about my teddy bear than the house and upset at my dad for not letting me back in to get it and didn't realize that you know my dad and mom just lost everything the life they had mm-hmm. along with my teddy bear were left behind so change comes suddenly and other people's conflicts and agendas rarely have concerns to what you hold dear so i think my experience with change started at that time and at that age And horrific as it was, uh, we were not expected to survive. We ran into the jungle, and believe me, you cannot survive the jungle in Sierra Leone. But uh, we were rescued by a tribe of known cannibals. I'm not kidding, they are cannibals. But one tribesman took it upon himself to rescue us, took us through wilderness that no modern human would survive and took it through his own you know, internal map to uh, a place of peace and used dust to ward off predators and animals that were not welcome through the trip. And yes, uh, some people call it magic. And in our world here, magic is not welcome. So I have seen a lot of magic in Africa. And 
I would say it's for those uh, who do not relate to magic, it's that little light of optimism and hope that comes through when you feel everything else is just darkness. And it's the extraordinary outcome that occurs when nothing else works, when you feel doomed. So yes, I've learned change at a very, very young age and change can be totally unpredictable and life-changing. Amazing. You mentioned, um, I guess, the the power of human or the keyword humanity earlier, and you said you you kind of found that in unexpected places. Can you elaborate on on that and where you where you found that lesson? Uh, so, uh, would you like that and just that ten year old experience or more? Anywhere you wherever many- wherever you find it, yeah. Absolutely. All right. So back then, uh, this group of cannibals normally uh, would have welcomed us as a really good dinner uh, side table. And instead, a younger man uh, in the tribe decided to rescue us. Uh, We felt we were doomed. And yes, that that humanity in this person was stronger than his need for a feast. Right. And we were rescued. Um, and I kid you not, they were cannibals um, and known to attract uh, unwelcome tribes. We were unwelcome to their area. And he rescued us. That was first. And, um, you know, this was my first <laughs> civil war. So my second happened in Lebanon. And it's funny how uh, war happens as you go to school and attend college and you go to college knowing that bombs are exploding in you know neighborhoods not too far from your home or from your school and life became normal during war but um humanity also showed up for me in college because there was a time the american university of beirut was a neutral place and a protected place and soldiers were never allowed inside the territory. And yet there was a day when those soldiers came in and the agenda for them violated that promise of neutrality for the college. And they wanted to dismantle our culture of education and dismantle um, the belief that we are safe inside the university for their political agenda and for separation. And we as uh, girls in back then uh, stood in the way of these army men by stepping on the floor and sleeping on the floor to not allow their cars to come in to the college. And all we wanted was to save our boys and professors from harm and separation. So uh, humanity happens because again, they could have stepped on us and ignored all TVs because it has happened before. But you know, that very person driving that truck, that humongous truck stopped and realized that these are girls on the floor. I cannot do this. Even though the command was move forward, move forward. And we could hear it. The funny part is the humanity in all this was, my friend looked at me, she was sitting next to me on the floor and she said, 
if they step on us, I'm going to find you in heaven and kill you and go to hell. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, those moments of bravery, their humanity, you know, dressed up in a more serious way. But we were saved that day and saved our own college teachers. And uh, same thing happened when I decided <laughs> to go as a refugee to Canada uh, in 1986. Okay, now it tells my age, 88. I decided that I needed a better future for my family. And uh, as a young adult, very young adult, by the way, <laughs> left to Canada <laughs> as a refugee. And I have to tell you, I saw humanity again and I saw the hope again because as a refugee in Montreal, I never once felt lesser than any officer, judge, social worker, or human that I came in touch with. Never once did I feel lesser as a human being. And to me, if nothing, this is the biggest lesson for humanity. Uh, I felt no value. I had no hope. I was broken as a human being. And every touch point as a refugee made me feel better and better until I came back in touch with who I am. So yes, I, you know a thing or two about change. And that probably was the biggest and best change I had in my life. So as someone who has ultimately earned a PhD in organizational change and leadership and spent 20 years inside corporate, serving corporate and five years outside of it, I cannot help myself but tell you that humanity is the best way out. We can demand compliance of people for so long and resilience and retaliation comes in three forms. They escape, we see the resignation now in the millions and that's the escape. They clash and we see it in teams as they fight and clash and compete over the same conflicting priorities and so they clash, they escape, or they hide. And we see that hidden human behind masks of confidence and assertiveness, hiding burnout, lack of confidence, and fear of what's next. So to me, it's either come back to humanity or continue to see that form of retaliation happen again and again in organizations that I support, that I, I'm sure you support as well. Um, so I think I've said enough about me. <laughs> well, this whole episode's about you, so. <laughs> so I was going to ask. Did that question. answer your question, Jeff? Did that, that answer your question? I'm not sure. Absolutely. And we have more. I have more yes. questions to come. Yes. Go ahead, Mo. Agreed. I was going to ask, I mean, first of all, you sharing those lived experiences just got me, you know, having goosebumps and stuff. So thank you for sharing that. Um, and I'm wondering how did those lived experiences uh, influence your approach to change management or how do you use that experience of yourself in life and how do you uh, inform your tactics or your approach to change management at an organization level? Would you be able to shed some light on that? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, a colleague of mine did her 
doctoral journey on emotional intelligence and Lean Six Sigma professionals. So she studied um, the difference in EQ between professionals who've completed their Lean Six Sigma certification and like professionals who have not and found no significant difference between the two. And I say okay. that because change has focused consistently on the process side. So mm. while in change, in change agents and change catalysts spend about 67 to 70% of their time with people, their curriculums, their work, their processes are all based on the non-human factor in mm. change. So I, I still remember the day that I decided to do my doctoral journey on change. And I was presenting to a group of senior leadership about their change efforts. This was 128 processes that went through um, standard work. So pro process improvement work over three years, this company, this healthcare system spent millions mm -hmm. on creating those uh, you know, process improvement uh, processes, really good reason and good purpose to make uh, these process improvement initiatives in place. And I had to stand there and analyze the sustainability of these efforts after three years and found myself telling them that only 11 processes out of 128 had sustained. Hmm. All the others fell through the crack. This was an organization that won awards, national awards for the processes they were following, but only 11 sustained. Hmm. And I went back and studied the why behind this failure. So on the outside, it looks like we're doing great. And I call it the hallucination phenomena for senior leaders. Senior leaders think everything is going great. We have a bold strategy. People are happy. They're making money. Why shouldn't they be happy? And then you go down to the levels as you go, you know, you pick the layers and layers of employees and you find something completely different on the other side. So, you know, where we're hallucinating on these perfect phenomena, the bottom line is experiencing something completely different, right? So I went back, I looked at this and found my confidence and my anchor to go back to my experience and say, oh no, it's the same thing. Mm. The human side of the equation is what truly matters. And no matter what these certifications tell me, or these people with really very long titles tell me, the experience I've had as a child, as a teenager, and as an adult, truly speak to the reality that I knew in my heart, but wouldn't dare share, which is the human side matters so much more and trust me, if you want to waste potential, put people in situations where they spend their energy in surviving instead of engaging their talent and really contributing their well-being and their heart to the strong culture that sustains and runs on a united 
front of alignment to your goals. Conflict happens because we're really not in touch with what really matters in the organization. And I think that's how I brought back that experience to work. No matter where I'm sitting and with whom I'm having the conversation, culture is what drives you and it's what driving millions of people right now to say enough, I choose to find the culture that suits my needs, a culture that works for me, and a culture that can clearly help me stay aligned to my purpose. So I think this is how I brought it back to my work. Awesome. No, that's uh, very, very insightful and helpful. And I'm curious, uh, from your experience working with, uh, you know, hospital organizations and not, what is it that you see different about hospital systems and them trying to institute or embracing change versus non-hospital systems? I like to see if you've observed any differences or seen any patterns that's, you know, indicative of the two different, uh, you know, industry types. Um. I, I think what I see, and I say it's unfortunate, mm -hmm. <laughs> is um, healthcare systems looking for consulting and uh, looking for the experiences of non-healthcare individuals to um, reclaim their sense of financial health and commitment to um, a profitable environment. And what I have seen is a most powerful thing about healthcare systems is that the purpose is an incredible one. You know, most organizations may struggle with purpose and yet some really smart ones like Zappos, right, found it's this great purpose behind selling shoes and brought it to life. And with organizations in healthcare, I see surprisingly that they're not tapping into that purpose. And what we could do differently and tap into more is we have a great purpose. We save lives. We can create a much more aligned culture toward a purpose that is incredibly powerful. And yet mm. that's what I see them as. So where organizations could do better in healthcare is get back to that purpose, create that culture of change based on purpose. And it's a miss in organizations. I feel like we've hired these accountants or financial people from, from the financial district to come and really govern the organizations in healthcare. And we can learn a lot from other organizations. Mm -hmm. But what we cannot miss is the focus on purpose that could be empowering to your own employees, to your own stakeholders, to your customers, your patients, and their families. And I would love for that to become the center of communication during change because we're missing that purpose. Got it. Would you say that maybe, and this is just my perception, right? So would you say that maybe some of the, at least down at the clinician's level, uh, they're all very 
understanding of their purpose. They know what they signed up to do, why they chose that career path. But somehow that goal of uh, saving lives or what they're doing, they know that it's saving lives and helping humanity can come in the way of their them embracing change that might be different from what they've learned to do. Uh, for instance, I'm, I'm talking out of learning this healthcare industry. We notice that there's a lot of challenges between physicians and say the nurses or other clinicians and there's conflicts and issues. And there is this hierarchical uh, nature where doctors and nurses see each other in superiority or inferiority in terms of level and what they contribute and where they stand in the pecking order. And that seems to have impacted the culture of you know, hospital systems and how clinicians work with each other, where they may have forgotten their ultimate purpose, maybe somehow of saving lives, but somehow somewhere conflicts and egos and hierarchy and like all of this have come into the equation of how culture is represented and experienced. And um, I don't know, maybe it's just my observation or question. Do you think that maybe they have forgotten the purpose or they believe they've already living it so they have the ability to act this way? I mean, I don't know. What is your analysis of the problems that these healthcare organizations may be facing with you know, how they treat each other as clinicians? That is a great, great question. And uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, it's not a perception. Um, mm -hmm. I do believe that the um, healthcare worker, the nurse, the nurse assistant, the ones on, you know, on the units serving that patient are very clear on their purpose, right? Very clear. I'm here to take care of this patient. Um, when we talk about physician, same thing, right? They, you know, their ultimate goal is to bring that patient from, you know, stage A to stage B to a better health and so forth. Um, I think what gets in the way is something that I just read um, on, uh, I think, Sloan Magazine. Uh, 1.4 million data points of employee uh, concepts or elements for culture. Um, they took 1.4 million of uh, data points to look at what do employee wants when it comes to culture? What are the expectation? And the top one that was significantly not only higher than others, but significantly higher than all others combined was respect. Mm. And uh, it's a very interesting one because they took those data points from Glassdoor. So whatever employees are saying about their companies, uh, you know, before they leave or or whatever they recognize their companies for. And it says that respect is one of the things that that's most employees want from their employer. I think the clash that happens has to do with missing that human need from each other. So uh, I don't feel heard is what I hear nurses say. I don't feel heard. I don't feel listened to, and I don't feel respected. My voice is muffled. And you're, they're coming to me with changes to my business, to my work. They're telling me how to do my job better. 
but they're not here with me. They're not visible and they don't show up to really see what happens and how they can truly make a difference to me. Right. So I think that's where the change equation is broken. That resistance to change is truly happening because of basic human needs. I'm tired. I'm burnt out. I'm not appreciated. And to top it off, you're telling me how to do my job better. And who are you to tell me how to manage my patient? Because they're looking at numbers, right? And they're looking at stats, but they're not looking to truly take time to influence buy-in and commitment from the healthcare worker that is out there doing the job, uh, you know, that they do best. So um, if you ask any healthcare professional, you know, from the organizations that you consult with or that we consult with, right? The question is how visible is, are my leaders on my day-to-day and yet they want to change my life in the workplace? And right. the intentions are in the right place, right? The intentions are always in the right place. Everyone wants to do a better job and everyone wants to create a process that you know is better for the organization. I think the miss is back in that human need for respect, for mm-hmm. supportive leadership, for leaders that can listen and hear. And I cannot tell you about enough about the middle manager. I just wrote to Forbes about the middle manager. Those middle managers are in the middle. They have to manage the top. They have yeah. to manage the bottom. And they are working in the zigzag life of pretending things are okay to the bottom and looking, showing up as I'm okay, and then pretending to be the most open to change to their leaders who probably may not have a clue of what's happening on a day-to-day basis. And they don't want to hear it either. They don't want to hear it. So so that's where I'm like, this is for me personally, I'm, I'm confused around like this is a very purpose-driven profession. It's yeah. a very goal-driven vision. Like this, this is the highest purpose you can think of is like saving human lives, right? And a physician, a nurse goes into this profession to bring good, to serve humanity. And they believe they're serving humanity. But yet the way they treat each other sometimes, the way they operate with each other sometimes seems contradictory to the very purpose and mission that they may have signed up for because... You know, it's it's obvious that while they're serving patients and they're out there to uh, serve humanity, save lives, they are still hurting each other through their behaviors, through their interactions, by not giving respect, by not listening, by not hearing them. So that's where I, I, I think it's a lack of self-awareness around these uh, these teams, these leaders, these professionals, where. They, they know their purpose, but I don't think they know how they are representing that purpose in all equal light in terms of not just their patients, but anyone they treat, anyone they work with, anyone they interact with, and that the purpose isn't just limited to patients. It should be everyone around you, cause no harm for anyone and everyone and not just the patients. Um, so I, I think that's the key to getting healthcare organizations to really embody that purpose beyond the patient care and into every aspect of their interaction 
And I think that's missing. Uh, you reminded me of a quotation that I absolutely love. Uh, yeah. I think it's by John Ron, one of the uh, you know most famous uh, speakers on leadership. Uh, and he says, no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Mm, nice. Right? And... I love that. Yes, it, it is. It is a great quotation, and one of my uh, clients, CEO, said, "Okay, send it to me. I'm going to send it to everyone because that's exactly what's happening." Uh, I have this example uh, right now of a chief medical officer that I'm working with, mm-hmm. who does not understand why the nursing leaders are not listening to him. He's like, <laughs> "I don't get it. I'm doing the right thing for the organization." I'm creating the change that everyone wants to see. And yet all I get is silence and this passive resistance to my ideas and my concept and my and my and my. And uh, the, the reality is he has the best intentions for the team, the best intentions for the organization. He truly has missed the boat on the self-awareness and he does not even understand why they're not listening to him and you know what this team does not care what you know (laughs) does not care how much you know or how much experience you have because they personally cannot believe that you care for them or for their well-being and that resistance will continue to happen. So you're absolutely right. There is no question about their mutual care for the patient and the family. There is a misguided approach regarding how they care for each other. Yes. So, you know, back to your book. Yes, it's all about love. And show me some love <laughs> and respect, you know, before I can actually want to work with you and collaborate with you. That resistance, I see it so strongly, but it starts with self-awareness. Yeah. Absolutely. I love that. I've I've written that quote down in three places already. Yes. (laughs) And and, and (laughs) it's for real. It's for real. I love the quote, and I wish I could say it's mine. It's not. But (laughs) culture, culture is a liability when it's misaligned, mm-hmm. when it's misaligned to your purpose, yeah. it's a liability. How could we be so good at caring for patients and families yet miss the boat on creating the same focus and care for our own teams? Yep. You know, so there's, there's, there's this constant change and I hear people say, well, the nurses don't care. They're leaving for more money. Uh, I can assure you, I am working with a client that pay horrible salaries to the nurses. And the ones that care stay. They don't leave you. They want to be with you and help you. But for me to stay, I want to feel heard, respected, and cared for. Did that answer your question? I'm sorry if I'm going in tangent. No, a- a- absolutely. And it, I think uh, it definitely helps validate 
the observations and the feelings that I've had. So I think you're definitely affirming that, okay, this is, this is not just my perception. It is what's happening at the, at is, the floor level. Yeah. And I see the clash at the leadership level. So at the, at the more frontline levels, if you are an egoless, right? Mm -hmm. Physician that cares for the team, the team is with you and, you know, holds you on and there's the relationship is pretty tight and that's what happens in a healthy unit and you'll see less errors in these units and less issues or concerns from patients and families i see the ego starting to fluster as we go higher in the organization another thing i want to share a story with you that is you know funny but worth sharing for if there's physicians out there listening and um I, I I had a conversation with a group of nurses about residents and yeah. they said, you know, and they were really, you know, quite mean to one resident differently from others. And I was yeah. like, why? Why do you seem to be picking on this one? And she said, and this is a group of nurses. It was hilarious to watch. Well, the, the residents that come in that are humble, that are respectful, that are caring, we want to help them succeed. We're the senior nurses. We know the business. They're learning. So we help them. We make sure that if we know this doctor does not like to be called at night, we say, don't call him. He's going to get mad at you. Let me help you. Right? If we know this doctor hates to be talked to before their coffee comes in, we say to the resident, be careful. Don't talk to them yet. They haven't had their coffee. And she said, but if the resident is one with a big head who thinks... I'm the boss here and I know everything. Guess what we do, Lubna? And I said, what do you do? Oh, we tell him, call the doctor. <laughs> you know, if you're at night and he has a question, we say, call this doctor, ask the question. And she said, this is, doesn't happen because we're mean to them. We just don't save them from the obvious because wow. they, they come in with this big head thinking, I rule the world. I'm the boss here. I know better than you. So yes, attitude is everything. You yeah. know, come in with humility, with humanity, with care, and things might miraculously work for you. Yeah, and, and not I against would, And I would actually ask, why are those doctors getting upset for getting called to do their job? <laughs> secondly, mm -hmm. their purpose is to save lives. And secondly, why are you upset before your coffee? <laughs> like, I would even go to, as far mm -hmm. as okay, the resident needs to learn the lesson, but also why do we still have doctors who are on call and then say, you know, don't call me after a certain time or they get upset or need to have their coffee before they're not upset, that these nurses have to watch out for all of this and watch out for each other. And, and how do you create an environment of safety for patients if, you're afraid to call a doctor who has the keys to helping a patient. That to me is baffling, right? So it almost seems like culture has even implications on the patient care because their very purpose of saving lives could be hurt if the culture of treating each other is not there because they might think I'm a, I'm a doctor, I take care of patients and the way I treat a nurse has no implication on patient care. I challenge that it absolutely does because if, Nurses are afraid to call you in times of emergency because you yelled at them, because you get pissed, then you're yeah. actually jeopardizing the patient safety and patient care. So you're actually going against the very purpose 
if you don't take care of each other and show care and compassion and love and create an environment of respect where you can have those conversations and seek help from each other. So, I mean, I just thought to segue into that because when I heard that, I was like, that hurts patients. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. and, and uh, to be honest, it is reality. Uh, yeah. As much as we don't want it to. I, I call them the culture sharks. Uh, I used to facilitate culture work from Sendelini. They're no longer in existence. Mm-hmm. Um, but culture sharks can derail your change efforts beyond any imagination, right? And unfortunately, uh, some of our best, best physicians or nurses could be the culture sharks in their areas. I remember once working with the chief medical officer, a wonderful, wonderful um, human being by the name of uh, Daisy Granado and um, very into a culture of humanity and care and purpose-driven conversations in the organization. Wonderful human being. And um, I was coaching one of her physicians that is absolutely a terror, (laughs) a terror in the organization. And I went to her, had a, you know, had a lunch with uh, this chief medical officer. And I asked her, I said, why do you tolerate this person? What is it that makes you tolerate this person? You know, she's so mean. She's she's a terror. She is so many. We've lost so many nurses because of her. Mm-hmm. And I just don't understand. Um, and I came to her like really asking for an answer because it seems to be misaligned with the values we're trying to create. And she looked at me um, and said, Lubna, if your child had a tumor in their brain, you want this doctor to be the one that looks at the x-rays. She said, the only one in the area that does not miss the tumor that every single other physician misses. And she told me sometimes the sacrifice comes because there's a bigger, bigger reason out there you know, that has to do directly with, you know, our patient safety. So when she said that, I had to sit back. Sometimes we may miss those little cues, right? The best of them could be the terror. The best surgeon could be the one creating the most toxic environment in in the room, in the OR. And the balance between patient safety and culture safety, a safety culture, becomes quite intertwined and it really takes people from outside the organization to work directly with those physicians to help them understand how their shadow of influence is broken because a shadow of fear does harm patient care right? And we have a lot of research out there, but helping them understand that they're the ones creating mm-hmm. that shadow of safety, lack of safety in the organization can take some, you know, profound uh, commitment to helping that physician see the, the, their impact on the organization. Yeah. So, yeah, sometimes administration may keep, a, you know, closed eyes, on those people because of what they bring to the table. Yeah. Unfortunately. Makes sense. Luna, 
I want to make sure we also have spend just a little bit of time before we run out of it on like kind of solutions, I guess. What, what, when we talk about creating lasting change, you know, you're an expert in change. We're talking about all these things happening, the great resignation you're talking about in healthcare, even out of healthcare is just all happening at once. And, and you've, we've highlighted in this conversation, some great examples and cases of where, you know, change is hard and tied to culture and, and we're struggling with it. But what is, in your opinion, the way out? Like, how do you create lasting change? Great question, Jeff. And uh, I told Mohammed uh, before that I'm writing a book on change and the book is based on my doctoral journey and eight years of research on sustaining change. And I found five factors, Jeff, that would really create um, a good, healthy recipe for change. The model is in my book, so does the leadership competencies that go with it. But the five factors are very simple to uphold if we have the right leadership in place. The first one is uh, purpose-driven conversations. Truly, the leaders believe that they're communicating effectively with their teams. And I can assure you, if I go to any organization right now, there's a misalignment between the perception of communication and the real impact of communication in the organization. So the first one is hold purpose-driven conversations with your team. Get back to purpose. Get back on track on humanity and what matters beyond that day-to-day jobs and tasks and emails. The second one is tap into your middle managers and the influential individual contributors that could be great catalysts for change. Um, We expect the middle managers to do so much, but we have not truly spent the effort or time or resources to help them grow and learn how to become true catalysts of change. So that's the second, um, you know, area for improvement or where we can do work regarding change. The third one is culture. And we've talked about culture today enough. Uh, Make sure that your culture truly promotes change. Uh, I listened to the CEO of Microsoft uh, talk about what's the one leadership characteristic that you want leaders to have when it comes to innovation and creativity. And his response was empathy. Empathy was the number one leadership trait that he recommends. This is the CEO of Microsoft saying empathy is the number one trait for innovation. So when it comes to culture, you want your culture to align with the change effort. If you want creativity, you better have empathy, you better have safety, you better have care in the heart and core of everything you do. Hmm. The, the, the fourth one is, so we talked about three things, right? The first one is purpose-driven organizations, the conversations, I apologize. The second one is the manager as a catalyst, the middle manager developing them to become you know, providers of a catalyst for the change. This third one 
is your culture. The fourth one is dialogue. Open, transparent dialogue about what's working, what's not working, and allowing employees to share, right? So not only over-communicate, but also over-communicate your listening. Uh, we talked about respect before. I think that's an area that is essential for change to sustain. Listen to what they're trying to tell you. Listen to what they're saying would work so that change can sustain. I have seen too many, too many groups and teams pretend and say yes to change and don't do anything about it because they tell me, oh, it's the flavor of this month. Next month, they'll find something new. That hurts the organization beyond compare because sometimes great ideas get shoved under the carpet. Why? Because you're not listening. So over-communicate your listening is the fourth one. And the last one, and uh, probably not the least, but the last one is providing coaching to the leaders to buy into the change, to influence the change, and to really hold the change as theirs. Uh, 50 to 70% of change initiatives fail. Uh, this is data from evidence-based peer-reviewed articles. In the tech industry, it's about 75% of failure for change. The reason behind it could be many things, including culture, but the one that I know for sure that drives failure to launch in change, just like airplanes. You know, a pilot told me most airplanes crash during launch. Same thing for change we lose the change at the very beginning. And that's because of lack of involvement of the right people in the change. Your bottom line needs to be part of the change. They cannot be ignored or just told about the change. Their buy-in and their commitment starts with them being involved before planning the change happens, before launch. Let them write your elevator speech for you. Let them be the one to create the vision for change. And it's a miss in organizations that I see again and again. You know, board of organizations are supposed to create the vision, help you see your potential beyond what you see. They're not supposed to drive the change for you. Your people are supposed to drive the change. So those are the factors, the five factors that I include in my book. And hopefully uh, I'll get you a copy as soon as I have it. Yes. It's, it's not there yet. It sounds incredible. Uh, when, when, when can we expect the book to be out? In March, March, 2022. That's awesome. nice. So I'll, I'll make sure to let you know when that happens. For sure. Do you have a title for the book already or are you still working? Yes. You ready? Yes, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> the Dignity Effect. That's the title. And then the subtitle, because Dignity Effect is like, what? What are you saying? Five tools to reclaim the abandoned factor during change. Nice. Wow. Provocative. I like it. Yeah. Let's hope for the best. <laughs> Good luck. I mean I, I, I mean, I enjoyed everything I heard. So if the book is anything like it, I think it'll be awesome. <laughs> so, 
I hope so. I hope so. For sure. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, one of the things that I, I mean, these five things I actually wrote down while you're talking, because I think these are so such compelling kind of ways to focus in on, on really tactical ways to actually start um, anybody's journey in kind of making sure that change starts sticking. And I, and you, everything you said really resonated with me because these are things that I've personally faced uh, struggles that I've seen happen, flavor of the months, things like that. And also with people we've worked with such a consistent pattern. And I think it's incredible that you've been able to pinpoint those and put so much kind of thought and research and, and, and kind of work behind them. So congratulations on that work and, and really incredible stuff. Thank, Thank you. you for sharing. Thank you. Appreciate that. And uh, that, I really wish we had all the time in the world to dig into all that, but unfortunately all good things must come to an end. But Luna, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all this wisdom and all this experience and this lived experience with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Thank you for the time. I appreciate it. And keep sharing love to the world, please. We need more of that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. We we are definitely trying and we're hoping to get other people uh, join us in, yeah. uh, you know, spreading love, starting with the corporate workplace. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And, and to our listeners, thank you as well for listening in. As always, we hope that you will uh, leave feedback, send us your thoughts, subscribe and rate us on your, uh, your podcast um, applications. But um, shameless plug for our book as well, as always, Love is a Business Strategy, available on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, et cetera, wherever you find books. So please do check us out. Um, be eagerly in anticipating Lubna's new book in March as well. And uh, thank you for joining us. As always, have a nice day.